So if you'd open your Bibles there to Luke chapter 18, we're in the middle of Luke 18, we're in verse, uh, verses 15 through 34, where we're going to see two precious moments, moments. Luke 18, verses 15 through 34. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers, wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not know the things which were spoken. Let's pray together. Lord, you're not hiding these things from us. You're wanting us to understand them by the ministry of your Holy Spirit who is here to guide and direct us and teach us all things. And so I pray that you would open up our ears first, our spiritual hearings, Lord, so that our hearts can receive the rich fullness of the Word of God. We've all come here from different places and and at different moments in our walk with you with different needs and desires, Lord. But we trust that you're here touching each and every one of us in a unique and special way so that when we leave this place, we'll know that we met with Jesus Christ. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. There is a connection between the blessing of the infants and the rich young ruler. First, if you'll take a look at these infants, Jewish parents often brought their babies to a rabbi in order to be blessed. Their precedent for it was in chapter 48 of the book of Genesis. There, the patriarch Jacob stretched forth his hands and laid them on the two sons of Joseph, his own grandsons, and pronounced a blessing over them and upon them. Now take a look at the rich young ruler. When you brought your baby to be blessed, 
you were hoping he would become just like the rich young ruler later in his life. Every outward appearance indicated that God was blessing him. His life was the ideal that every infant blessing looked forward to. He would have made any Jewish parent proud. In the end, you really don't want your baby to grow up to be like him. Someone who walks away from the Lord. Jesus was remarkable in capturing moments and making them precious moments within which he could teach the simplest yet most profound of spiritual truths. And as I said, these are two of those precious moments moments. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, keep acting like a child who depends on its father. And number two, quit acting like a child who makes demands on its father. First of all, in verses 15 through 17, keep acting like a child who depends on its father. When you have an infant in your arms, everyone wants to see him or her. Everyone except the ushers. <laughs> Jesus' disciples were acting like ushers in a church service, not wanting the Lord to be distracted by the many infants that were being brought out to be blessed by him. And so in verse 15, we read, then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Excuse me. I mentioned the ushers. Let's pause for a minute and talk about that. Are we wrong to have procedures in place to restrict infants and young children from the sanctuary on Sunday mornings? Not at all. In this story, Jesus was walking along outdoors. He was surrounded by the hustle and bustle of life. People were coming and going. It's not at all comparable to a church service. A more accurate comparison would be if the ushers, after our service here was over, kept people with babies from coming up to the pastor to say hello as he stands out at the door. It's completely out of context to apply this story to a church policy that is seeking to minimize distractions. Now, our goal and our challenge really is to provide the very best accommodations for everyone. We only want parents to respect others. And if they have infants or small children and don't want to utilize our children's ministry or nursery, we ask that they sit in certain really comfortable, wonderful, designated areas. Children can be a distraction. We love them, but they can be a distraction. Here's how it goes. Baby, first of all, the baby, it doesn't just start crying and leave. You know, it's not a five-second thing. It's, it's the grunting that starts first. The little baby grunts. You know what I'm talking about. And then, you know what's even worse about it is the mother. Because the mother now, my baby's causing a distraction. Shh. Over at the YMCA, my favorite thing, this happened every other week. Uh, a, a, a toddler would start to get a little bit fussy. And after five solid minutes of the mother and the baby, you know, in concert, she would finally give it the keys. So now here's what you have. Now you're 10 minutes into it. Finally, an usher. Huh? What's happening? I wonder if Pastor Gene is distracted. 
And then the cry, then it's like, well, let's wait. Okay, that was just one cry. Maybe it's out of its system. It was a burp or something, you know, it's, it's all gone. And then finally the baby would leave and stuff. And so now, you know, I'm going to be a grandfather. I love babies, but they're not going to be in here. They're going to be where they belong because we're trying to do something. We're trying to teach the word of God. Do you want to? And so we've got, we've got this beautiful area out there where people can sit with their families. There's a mother's room. There's the overflow. There's so much stuff. Uh, and, and, you know, albeit we don't always do a great job of communicating to people what our vision is and what our feeling is. But more than, well, I was going to say more than once, dozens of times over the 20 years I've been here in Hanford, no matter what venue we've been in, people have called me and said, brother suffer the little children to come to Jesus. You're blocking these children from coming to Jesus. No, we have baby dedications all the time. See, that's what this was. This was baby dedication. And Jesus said, yeah, I'm, I'm into that. I'll lay my hands on babies. I'll pray over them. Uh, but you don't see him doing this in the synagogue. And that would be the more you know, apt application. Can you imagine Jesus about ready to say some famous things in the synagogue and, and people rushing up to him with their babies? You don't have that kind of a thing. God is orderly. We're trying to be orderly. We want to accommodate everyone. We love everybody. I love babies. I love women and old people. And I love everybody. Okay, so I'm just on record as being a lover of all things and stuff. So. Now, Jesus' disciples were blowing it in their context because it says in verse 16, he called them to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus called a staff meeting. He established a procedure. He let his disciples know that it was okay for parents with infants to approach him to receive his blessing upon their kids. And we need to have certain procedures in place. They should be as minimal as possible, but they're necessary. Ultimately, we rely upon the leading of the Holy Spirit, either to set our procedures or to guide us when there are none. Little children refers to infants. At least some of them were young enough to be carried and were babies. And there was something about babies that Jesus could use to teach us something about our spiritual lives. Verse 17, assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Volumes have been written on this one simple statement. One of the keys to unlocking it is the word receives. Think about that word and then think about a baby. A baby receives everything from its parents. All of its needs are in the control of the parents. All the essential resources are the gift of the parents. Food and clothing and shelter. You would say that the infant is totally dependent on its parents. And see, a lot of times we're making more of Jesus' illustrations than is there. Jesus is looking at a baby and he's saying what we already know. Look at the baby. The baby is totally dependent on its parents for everything. It can't dress itself. It can't buy clothes for itself. It can't buy food. It can't chew. It can't eat without you feeding it. There's nothing that the baby can do except exist. It is totally dependent. And so it seems to me that the truth Jesus was seeking to communicate was and is that you are to be as spiritually dependent upon your heavenly father 
as an infant is physically dependent on its earthly parents. That makes sense. And it's beautiful. It's a really precious insight. You read in Philippians chapter four, verse 19, Paul, the apostle wrote this. Many of you have memorized this. He says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, I never really have thought about that in terms of how you would illustrate that. How would you illustrate God supplying all of your needs? And Jesus does that for us here in this text. He says, here's how to illustrate it. Look at a baby. The parent provides for all of its needs in that same way, only in a greater extent and with a fuller understanding and a perfect love, your heavenly father provides for all of your needs. You are to keep acting like a child who depends upon your father. Even though you are growing and maturing in the Christian life, even when you would no longer be considered a spiritual baby from one point of view, you should maintain a childlike trust that your heavenly father shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. No matter how long you walk with the Lord, no matter how old you are in the Lord, no matter how mature you are in Christ, you are to still always have a childlike trust that your father is caring for you the way any father would care for an infant. And so every time you see a baby... Let it remind you that you have in heaven a father who cares for you to a greater extent than any earthly parents care for their children. Now, here's one of the ways this works. You and I find ourselves often in situations and circumstances where it's difficult to trust the Lord. Does the Lord know that I'm sick? Does he know that this person is dying? Does he know my financial need? Does he understand what's happening in my life? And Jesus would say, Unless you receive the kingdom as a, a little child, you don't receive it at all. And he would remind us to maintain that childlike trust. Yes, my father knows those things. He shall supply all my need through his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And if he's not supplying something, then I must not need it. Or if he is giving me something I don't want in the area of sorrow or suffering or pain, then I must need it. And I may not understand, in fact, I will not understand fully until I see my Savior face to face. But I can remain trusting and dependent as an infant. Now, as we go on, we see the rich young ruler no longer an infant. He's perhaps an, was blessed as an infant, and now he's a, a, a strapping young man. And we're going to see that you should quit acting like a child who makes demands on its father. Now, regarding this story, in three different Gospels... You can determine that he was rich, that he was young, and that he was a ruler. Luke doesn't tell you all of those things, but put the Gospels together, and he is the rich, young ruler. And so, in a sense, he had it all. He, he had everything that this world had to offer. He was rich. He had his health. That's implied by the fact that he was young and vibrant. And he had achieved some prominence and position in the world. He was a ruler, which could mean some kind of a, an official or just that he was part of the ruling class. So, I mean, this was the epitome of Jewish culture at that time. A rich, to be a rich young ruler, I mean, he was the John Kennedy of his day. Uh, you know, back when, when uh, John Jr. was alive. I mean, he was the kind of the epitome of, of that individual. Everybody wanted to be him. 
And as I mentioned already, his parents would have considered him an infant whose blessing had come true later in life. I mean, you'd look back and think, man, I'm so glad we went to Rabbi Hillel and he blessed our little boy. And now look at him. God is just pouring out his blessings upon his life. Now, in verse 18, he encounters Jesus Christ, and this is going to change his life forever. A certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's important that we understand what's being asked from the very beginning to get a sense of how this conversation is going to go. A more accurate translation of these words would be, what, having done, shall I inherit? Now, it doesn't read really well in English, but I think you get the sense. He's saying to Jesus, I've done all of these things that I am supposed to do. I deserve something for it. What is it that I'm going to get for having obeyed God's word? And this is the typical thinking of the Jewish mind at that time. Uh, he, he felt like he had obeyed the word of God, the laws of God, and God was blessing him. And he was now looking ahead to eternity thinking, well, if God has blessed me this much in life, how much is he going to bless me in eternity? What is it that I can expect? How great will be my reward in heaven? And when you think about it that way, you, you understand that from the very first words out of his mouth, all he ever thought about was material things, whether they were on earth or waiting for him in heaven. He was a materialist. Now, in defense of him, now, I mean, it's wrong, but to defend him, this was the prevailing mindset of the Jew. So much of what God taught in the Old Testament seemed to deal with physical material blessings. If you obey him, he'll take you into the land and he'll bless you with prosperity. Those were supposed to represent spiritual blessings, but the Jews settled for the physical blessings and they believed that if you were obedient, God would bless you. Or if you were being prospered, it was a sign of God's blessing in your life. And so this is what they're thinking. In a sense, the rich young ruler was making a demand upon Jesus. He was demanding a future inheritance based on his good works. He was, in fact, acting like a spoiled child who feels they're in a position to make demands on its parents because they have accomplished everything that they set out to do. And so Jesus began to answer the rich young ruler by focusing his attention on this word good. So Jesus said to him, verse 19, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. Now, Jews reserve the use of the word good for God. And this is a key thing because, uh, again, a lot has been written on this. A lot of people argue back and forth, you know, did, was Jesus saying that he was God or was he saying he wasn't God? And there's all this confusion over this. It's all solved by knowing that Jews only called God good. And so here's what I think is really going on. I think the rich young ruler is saying to Jesus, I believe that you are God or I believe the things that you are saying about yourself. Now, that's interesting because by the end of this little encounter, we're going to ask ourselves, if you believe God is Jesus is good, that Jesus is God. Why don't you do what he tells you to do? If you encountered God and you knew it was God, he told you to do something. Do you think you'd do it? Sure. 
And so the rich young ruler, Jesus questioned him, is going to point out, do you really think that I am God? Here's the context in our culture. Most of the people in our country claim to be Christians. Doesn't it blow your mind as a born-again Christian when you read these polls that come out in the newspaper? 98% of Americans consider themselves to be Christians. Don't you scratch your head and think, okay, if they're Christians, they must believe that Jesus is God because that's part of the definition of a Christian. If they do, why don't they do what Jesus tells them to do? Would you say that 98% of America is following God's word, doing what the Bible says to do? No, of course not. And so that's what's happening here with this rich young ruler. He's making, in a sense, a confession of faith, but it's not a real faith. It's on the surface because he's trying to get something from Jesus. That's the relationship that he has. And so we, we see that he misunderstands the deity of Jesus Christ. And now we see that he misunderstands the purpose of God's law. Jesus says in verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, you remember that the Ten Commandments were written on two stone tablets. On one tablet were four commandments having to do with your relationship with God. You're to put no other gods before him. You're to make no images of God. You're to uh, never take his name in vain. And you're to keep the Sabbath. When the rich young ruler called Jesus good without really meaning it, he was taking the Lord's name in vain. At the end of this story, when he refuses to give away his possessions, you'll see that he had put money as a God before God. And so he is definitely breaking the law of God while he's claiming to have kept it from his youth. As far as these five particular commands... You know that on the other tablet, there were six commandments having to do with your relationship with your fellow man. Jesus mentions five. He stopped short of mentioning thou shalt not covet. And we'll see why in a minute. The rich young ruler said confidently, I have kept those five. Outwardly, he had outwardly. Those are the five commandments that you can kind of keep if you're a moral person. There are people who can go through life without committing adultery or murdering. Hopefully most of you will go through life without murdering anybody. You can go through life without stealing or at least getting caught for it. And, and so, so it is at least theoretically possible to keep outwardly these five. He'd broken the other tablet. And we're going to see in a minute he was a covetous person, so he, he broke the last commandment. But he could confidently say, I've done this. And this is a problem when you talk to people about Jesus Christ. Because they go to the worst commandment, say murder. They say, I haven't killed anybody. I'm not Charles Manson. Okay, well, then good for you. Hey, I'm happy, you know. But, uh, but they are lawbreakers. Here's how it works. I went for this. This happened several years ago, but I had gone, I don't know how many years without getting a traffic ticket. I was I was actually proud of it. I told my kids I never got a ticket. I mean, I'd driven millions of miles literally as a salesman over the years and never got a ticket until that fateful morning in Armona. (laughs) Five a.m. I might have been six, but it was early. Right there in Armona at the four corners, you know, and stuff, the hub of all the activity in Armona. I mean, traffic was just bumper to bumper, you know it. 
and the uh, highway patrolman said that I made a California rolling stop. Wrote me a ticket. Now, when he came up to the window, what I wanted to say to him, I didn't say, but what I wanted to say to him was, eh, officer, is there a problem? Yeah, you roll through the stop sign. Okay, yeah, you know, okay, I can see where you think that. And let's say I actually even did that, but do you know that I always drive the speed limit elsewhere? I uh, always use my signal light. Uh... I do this, I do that. You know, you can go through all the traffic law and say, I, I have kept every other law. And so, doesn't that count for something? Doesn't the weight of my, you know, driving the speed limit all the time, doesn't that cancel out the fact that I might have rolled through this 6 a.m. stop sign? No. Why not? Because you've broken the law. It doesn't matter how many laws you keep. People don't go to court and they say, excuse me, I'd like to tell you, I've kept 3,000 laws. Yeah, but you've broken this one and that's, well, you know, come on, give a guy a break. That's not how it works. And so that's the, that's the idea we have spiritually. People think, well, I've, I'm not a very bad person. I've kept mo- all the really important things. But if you were in a court of law, they'd laugh you out. They'd cuff you and take you to the dungeon or something, you know, but... But in, in front of God's court, we're thinking, oh, yeah, I'm pretty good. I haven't murdered anybody. You know, Jesus, of course, would go on to tell you if you've ever hated anybody, you've effectively murdered them in your heart. And so that cancels that out anyway. So really, he hadn't even kept these five, even though he thought he had. He had misunderstood the purpose of God's law. It wasn't ever given by God so that you would keep it. And by keeping it, earn anything. It was given to show you that you cannot keep it. No one can keep God's law, any part of it. You might be able to keep some of it outwardly, but you cannot keep any of it inwardly. And so when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. First of all, does this mean we should do the same? Not at all. Jesus was putting his spiritual finger on the real problem in this man's heart. The rich young ruler was guilty of covetousness. He might have kept these other five commandments to a certain extent, but he coveted. Jesus had not mentioned covetousness in his list of commandments, but he pointed it out now because he saw the essential issue. Now, the gospel of Mark makes it clear that the rich young ruler refused Jesus and went away. He had addressed Jesus as good He had addressed Jesus as God, but when God Almighty asked him to obey and follow him, he refused. He declared that he had kept God's law, but he was filled with covetousness. Elsewhere in the Bible, you're told that covetousness is idolatry. And you can see that illustrated here. He was so coveting material things that they had become his God. He would not give them up in order to follow God. Jesus used this encounter to teach his disciples, verse 24. And when Jesus saw that, he became very sorrowful. He said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it hard for the rich? You wouldn't know. But I've studied this and let me think. 
No, there's at least two two reasons why it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Number one, we've already talked, well, actually, we've already talked about both of them. Think about it. You, first of all, have a tendency to believe that wealth is a sign that God is blessing you. Almost always, even with decent Bible teaching, people have a natural tendency to think that if you're being blessed with health and wealth and prosperity, then God is pleased with your life. And the moment you come into a trial, oh, what am I doing wrong? And this is why in the New Testament, the writers have to say, you need to count it all joy when trials come into your life. Don't think you've done a wrong thing. This is just the normal Christian life. And if you want to think about something, there are so many warnings to rich people in the scripture. Anytime riches are mentioned, somebody, whether it's Jesus or Paul, the apostle or James, they are warning rich people, man, you'd better be careful. Riches are a snare. They entrap you. And and this is one reason why, because you sit around thinking, wow, God must be really pleased with my obedience. He must really think I'm something to give me so much more than other people. It's very dangerous spiritually to be wealthy. Not very many people can handle having wealth. And then secondly, it's hard for wealthy people because they come to depend upon their wealth rather than depend upon God. In a materialistic world, in a materialistic culture like we live in, we depend upon money and things. And and it's it's easy to do that uh, when you can buy yourself out of trouble or, you know, use your resources to help you. God is the last thing that you flee to. He's the last person that you contact. And, and we lose this sense of dependence. I mean, we're the country that has the declaration of independence, right? I mean, we're a very independent people. Politically, nationally, that's fantastic, right? Isn't this the greatest country in the world? I don't see people clamoring to get into other countries. This is the greatest country in the world. Spiritually, we make declarations of dependence upon God. And and it's hard for us to leave national and political thinking outside in a sense and come into a relationship with God and say, now, God, I totally depend on you. You might have given me some talent, some ability, an ability to breathe, an ability to do this or that. But I depend moment by moment upon you and anything you've given me, whether it's life or health or whatever, I I need to figure out how you want me to invest that or how you want me to use that or how I can bring that out to your glory. I mean, I am just totally dependent on you. And this is hard for you and I who don't have a lot. How much harder it is for those who are wealthy. It's hard to remember you're a helpless infant when you have acquired so many things. Verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus meant a real camel and a real sewing needle. It is a humorous exaggeration. And, you know, a lot of people are trying to explain that there was some kind of a gate called the eye of a needle and the camel would have to get down small and creep through. No, that's stupid. <laughs> Jesus was funny. I mean, he was a funny guy. 
He said, hey, I'll tell you what it's like. It's like a camel going through the eye of a sewing needle. And you think, what would you think? Well, that's impossible. That's it. Exactly. And that's why his disciples say, who then can be saved? Jesus' disciples were Jews who had been raised believing that wealth and prosperity was the sign of blessing. Everything they had been led to believe was now being challenged. To put it into our context, they believed the rich young ruler had grown up and achieved the blessing that was pronounced over him as an infant. But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Wow, tremendous scripture. It is impossible to be saved by keeping God's law. It is impossible to be saved by any works of righteousness you might be able to perform. Salvation is impossible except by God's free gift of grace. God has made salvation possible by sending Jesus Christ. Verse 28, then Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. Now, Peter, I think is is following this. He's understanding this. We're always making fun of Peter for being stupid, but he's following this. And this has been a challenge to his way of thinking. He understood that Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler, you have to leave all and follow me and then you'll be rewarded. Because that was what his question was, Lord, how, how am I going to get rewarded in heaven? And Jesus said, well, you're going to have to leave everything and follow me. So Peter says, okay, Lord, we've done that. We're not like the rich young ruler. We're starting to catch on to this lesson, but I'm still concerned about what's in it for me. Is it all sacrifice and suffering in this life and in the next? How does that all work out? You see, Jesus had just rocked their entire worldview And this is a reasonable question or a statement, actually, but it's a backed by a question. And so Peter wanted to know. And this is a common thought among Christians as well. We all want to know that our sacrifices are meaningful. We want to know that living the Christian life has some value, don't we? Especially as we see others prospering and then we're challenged to wonder, is it worth it for me to have given up? These things or to live differently than my neighbors. Is it worth it? So first Peter and the other disciples could expect to be rewarded for their sacrifice. Verse 29. Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, the sacrifices you make to follow Jesus Christ They can affect the dearest relationships you have on this earth and all of your earthly possessions. We had a study uh, about a month ago or so where Jesus was saying similar things about how you're going to be at odds perhaps with your family. You come to tell them you're a Christian and then they persecute you. And and there's a division sometimes between father and mother and, and their children or husband and wife or brothers and sisters. And so just by becoming a Christian, oftentimes there is a sacrifice that you are asked to make to say yes to Jesus and no to these other earthly relationships. And so Jesus says, well, I've got that covered. Uh, If you're worried about losing earthly relationships and possessions, you've got tons of them. They may not be the kind that you're looking for, because what they are is everybody who's a Christian now is your brother and sister. And so you you maybe have to sacrifice in your personal family, but I've given you a huge extended family that reaches through history. 
And, and you may have to sacrifice some physical goods and resources. But really, though we don't live as a commune, we do live in community. And as you live in a community with other believers in a church, they take care of each other. They see to each other's needs. And so it, it's, it may be not the kind of lifestyle of the rich and famous you're looking for. But it is the lifestyle of the righteous and faithful. And God provides for you these things. Even now, God is compensating you. And he says, in eternity, you'll have even more. See, we have to keep reminding ourselves that we are not living for this life. The Bible makes it clear we are strangers, pilgrims, wanderers. If we have anything, it's a blessing. We're looking forward to our eternal home. And so Jesus says, yeah, you're going to be blessed, but it's going to be a different kind of blessing than you're talking about. And most of it's going to be in eternity. There's also much suffering to endure as a disciple. And he next spoke of his own impending suffering as an example of the pain a disciple can expect in this life. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the son of man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and he will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Now, Jesus was going to the cross. He was going to die on the cross. According to the multitude of Bible passages and prophecies, which pointed first to his death by crucifixion and then to his resurrection from the dead. Spoken here to his disciples in the context of our story, these words were a comfort to them. Leaving all to follow him meant following him all the way. If Jesus went to the cross and died, so too would they need to daily pick up their crosses and die to themselves and maybe even to the point of martyrdom. Jesus, though, would rise again. He would be alive forevermore, a risen Savior who would ascend to heaven and then return to reign. In the meantime, his followers could live in the power of that resurrection. They're not left to fend for themselves. Later, Jesus would promise to send the Holy Spirit to be in you and to come upon you so that you can walk in the power of his risen life. Verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not know the things which were spoken. On the surface, it seems sad that they did not understand, but it says God actually hid these things from them. He hid them at this time. Later, they would return to these words and be comforted. They were thus in a position where they must totally trust and depend upon Jesus. In other words, they were like infants who must trust and depend upon the care of their heavenly father. Does an infant really need to understand how you are caring for it? Does it wonder about the nutritional content of its food or the frequency of its diaper changes? You know, we through technology, we have all these weird babies that talk and we, you know, the latest one is the Quiznos ad, you know. I quit eating at Quiznos because those ads creep me out. That, that, little, that little baby's too creepy for me. But anyway, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's always funny when a little baby starts talking as if it was an adult, you know, as if it, it relates to that. But that, it's funny because it's insane. And, and so when you're caring for your infant, you know, your infant doesn't, doesn't have any understanding, really, of, of what you're saying to it or what's happening. It just... If anything, it just completely depends upon and trusts you. 
to feed it, love it, change its diaper, put it to bed, wake it up, all of those different things. And so when, when the scripture here says they, God hid their understanding, it's to emphasize this whole context we're talking about, that they would have to trust in him as an infant trusts in its parents. Earthly parents are not always good, are they? But God is good. A lot of these illustrations, you have to be careful with them. Because you can't think, okay, well, if God is like an earthly parent, gosh. You know, I know a lot of earthly parents that need to get a license. You know, they don't know what they're doing. But it's, a, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. God, by definition, is a fantastic parent. He knows what you think before you think it. He knows what you need before you need it, obviously. Now, here's the problem. We'll put it in terms of our story. You and I, as Christians... We feel like we're infants. We want to trust the Lord, but we think we're in a situation where our diaper needs to be changed. We've been sitting in this poopy situation for quite a while, and it's starting to really stink. We're irritated by it. We've got a rash. And it's almost, we think God as our Father is not changing our diaper. We don't know how much more it can hold. Before the whole thing, <laughs> our situation stinks. So I could go on and on. But God is a heavenly father and none of that can be true, can it? What parent among you would think, I'm going to, have a, I'm going to conduct an experiment. I want to see how much this diaper can hold. Don't touch that diaper. We're up to number five. I mean, you wouldn't do that. You'd be arrested for abuse. But we think of God that way. We think, God, I've got this poopy diaper on and you will not remove it. And so who's wrong? You're wrong. I'm wrong. It's not that. God is not putting us in a situation like that. We just perceive it that way. We should just trust and depend upon God and say, God, this is, I guess this is what I need right now. See, we always think God shall supply all of our need that at the last minute he's going to come through with this or that, the healing or the money that we need. A lot of times God knows that you need some pain and some sorrow in your life so that he can mold and shape you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, look, I'm going to go and die. They're going to spit on me. When's the last time you were spit on? I don't, that, man, that's a, that crosses a big line when somebody hocks a big logie on you. I mean, that's a nasty thing. People can do a lot of stuff, but when they spit on you, that's, that's about it. And so Jesus said, you know, my father is going to allow me to go through all of those things, but I will depend upon him because he is good. If you're a Christian, even as you grow and mature, maintain the dependence of a baby towards your heavenly father. Now, you may think you're a Christian. Almost everyone does. Think about what you've learned. If you think you're a Christian, then you believe that Jesus is God. If you believe Jesus is God, are you obeying him? Have you left all to follow him? And then look at yourself according to God's law. Do you believe you are keeping God's law? Not just the big ones, all of it from the heart. The law exposes your heart. It shows you that you are a lawbreaker in the deepest part of your soul and that there's nothing you can do about it. And so ultimately, are you going to go away without making a commitment to Jesus Christ or will you forsake all?
to follow him. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you for these things. They're precious. What an amazing encounter you had with this rich young ruler. How sad, Lord, that he didn't understand what you were saying. That he put materialism ahead of eternal life. That he didn't really believe that you were God come in human flesh. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today that we could learn more and more to depend upon you and trust in you regardless our spiritual maturity, regardless that we're maybe not babies in Christ anymore. Lord, we want to remain childlike and have an understanding that you are supplying all of our needs through Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone here, Lord, that isn't a believer, I pray that they would see themselves in this story reflected in the life of this young man And that rather than go away sorrowful, they would come to you and receive the joy of your salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. As we close our service, some of the guys will be down here to pray with you. I invite you to come down and uh, allow them that privilege. Uh, Looking ahead, Wednesday morning, the guys will be together in the cafe. Wednesday night here at 7 o'clock, Calvary Kids Club will be going, but we'll be here having our worship and communion service. Uh, And then... um, Saturday, the men are getting together. Information in your bulletin. Next Sunday morning, we're back here, rapture permitting. Go over to the cafe, grab yourself a smoothie this morning or a chiller or something great. Hang around, have some good fellowship with other believers. If you're not a Christian, we'd like to talk to you about giving your life to Jesus Christ. Come forward and just talk to us and say, hey, that really really opened my eyes. What do I need to do to be saved? I'm tired of living life Uh, the way I've been living it. I want to know Jesus Christ. We'll be happy to lead you in a prayer that asks Jesus Christ to be your Savior. God bless you and keep you.
Because of you.